0: So I have to begin confessing with you that I'm embarrassed about the fact that my college roommate happened to be one of my best friends in high school, and his name was Todd Kress, and Todd's wonderful friend. And I came into my dorm room late one night, and Todd was sitting on, like, with one of those big buckets of pretzels. I don't know if you've seen these before, but this one was pretty stale, and it had my name written on it, and it had been there for about six months, all right? And, and I can just see Todd. He's, he's going to break a tooth on one of these things, but he's mad as he's. Eating it, and I, I didn't really notice what was going on until a couple of minutes later. I'm like, "Dude, what's going on?" And he's like, "Dude, you ate all my food," is what he said. And, and I guess uh, he was confronting me at this moment because I might have borrowed one of his mom's nice chocolate chip cookies that she would baked, uh, you know, rec- like around that time period. And so so what Todd is doing at this moment is he's calling me out for not being the best roommate in the world. You guys are all looking at me like I'm crazy. Like you've never, are you ashamed of me right now? Uh, that's what's happening. Well, well, what happened though from there is that, I apologize, ordered a pizza. We ended up having a conversation that would take us up till like four in the morning. It was an awesome conversation. And I look back on that. Actually, the Lord took Todd home early in his life. He was killed by a hit-and-run accident. And I look back, especially around the, the time of just his funeral and just reflecting on his life, and it's crazy to say it, but that night that started with conflict actually led to one of the most important nights of our friendship together. And I want to share with you this morning something that's going to surprise you a bit. And that is, I believe, when conflict is done really well, when we stick together in relationship, the fruit of that can be something that's better than if we chose to ignore it. If we chose to just say, what's the big, like, ah, like if we chose to just put ourselves in a position where we, you know, you know, cavities are kind of like that. You can ignore going to the dentist for only so long and it, it doesn't get better, does it? But in fact, those things can fester. And I think for some of us, especially in this part of the world, we have the tendency to look at conflict sometimes and we say, I'm just gonna avoid Conflict, but I, I like the way that comedian and um, pastor Mark Gunger puts it. He he quotes this this proverb. And you may have seen this before: that without oxen, the stable stays clean. And and, and the quote there is: you, you guys have been around cows, right? Uh, some of you have been in barns before. And if you don't maintain a barn, it gets pretty gross, doesn't it? That there's this constant reality that you constantly have to maintain it. And what he's saying there is if there's no ox in the barn, then if there's nobody there to make the mess that needs to desperately need cleaned up. And for some of us, we've just made that decision. We put up walls in our life that we say, I I don't need anybody in my life right. I can get through this on my own. Uh, But that proverb goes on to say that without the ox, then um, that you can't plow the fields, that you need help. And and I can't help but guess that for some of us, we find ourselves in rejecting relationships and the kind that we need, that we're kind of like this guy trying to plow his field on his own, right? Can you imagine pushing that plow? But, but thankfully, uh, we don't have to go it alone. I love this picture. He's got a friend to, to, to join him in the process. That there's a, there's a part of the reality of life that we desperately need to be with one another, This description is one that reminds us, however, that relationships are messy. They're hard. They're difficult. They come at a cost. To co-labor together is something that I believe Satan does not want us to do, by the way. In this passage that we're going to study together today, I, I believe Satan wants to do things that divide us, separate us, isolate us, and leave us to try to push through life alone. And I think he also loves in the context that we're going to be in to to take the gospel, the good news of the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and to add to it. And, And what we see in the text in this historical event called the Jerusalem Council recorded in Acts chapter 15, we're going to see together a time period in history When people were going to attempt to add to the gospel, and it had the potential of dividing the church right in half at its earliest stage. But what we see today as we study God's word together in Acts chapter 15 is that there is a way for us to resolve conflict that makes us stronger than what we would have been if we have chosen to ignore it or to allow it to fester. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 15. And we're going to pick up at the beginning of this chapter, and as we study this, I want to encourage you that good conflict can produce great results. There is such a thing as good conflict, and we're going to see that modeled for us in Acts chapter 15 in a beautiful way. We're going to begin in verse one. But some men came down from Judea. Then we're teaching the brothers. This is a statement of Christians speaking to other Christians that were Gentiles that had accepted Christ says this, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, that you cannot be saved this group of people would be known as Pharisees or Judaizers that were saying that a person who was a Gentile that were going to be a Christ follower, that they needed to have the prerequisite of becoming a Jewish person. They needed to get circumcised physically, that they needed to go through an act of establishing the same kind of establishment and understanding of the rules. And and that was the argument that happened historically. In verse two, it says this, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So the question came to Christians what, what does it look like to receive the gospel if you're a Gentile? And I love the description of Paul and Barnabas, that there, there was no small debate. This, this Greek word is interesting because it's loud. It's presenting facts. It's like some of your homes on Thanksgiving, right? Anybody have a family like that? I have a family. In-laws like that, definitely. I hope they're not watching. Um, but, but it's loud in our household because they debate and discuss. But, but actually what happens here is that there was an intentional recognition that what was being done was an attempt to corrupt the gospel. We know in life, some of you are like, why is there a huge bottle? Sean's thirsty in here. We know that for some of us, we look at life half full or half empty, don't we? Uh, Do you guys want to debate that right now? Uh, Some of you might look in the room and you might say, hey, that's half full or that's empty. But what we know about disagreements is that Often they're perspective-based, that we we come into it with our history and our experience and we look at things and we we begin with one set of preconceived notions about what is right and wrong, what's true and what's inaccurate. And here, what they choose to do is they choose to confront these individuals that are really bringing in an unethical, a wrong approach that, that ultimately misunderstood what God's Word had taught before. But what they're going to model for us is that God's word is going to be the ultimate authority. It's going to be the one that sets the tone for how this is resolved. And so here they gather together in Jerusalem with the elders to, to address this really significant challenge. Verse three says this, so being sent on their way by the church, they pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. They're celebrating that God's bringing people to the Lord. They're not going to let this disagreement get in the way of the gospel. It says this in the end of verse three, it says, And it brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, or these Judaizers, they rose up and they said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. So, so they, they look at this, this problem from the perspective of there needing to be a prerequisite to understand the gospel for a person to experience God's grace. And, and they did so. This is so helpful for me. I love the way Lloyd Ogilvie puts it. Is that I think it's easy for us historically to look back and say, how could they do this? What, what in the world are they thinking? But, but Lloyd Ogilvie, the commentator, puts it this way. He says, think... Of the stability of the Pharisee's training and Hebraism, his immersion in the Mosaic law and the tradition, his pride in being part of the chosen people of God. Live in his shoes as we relive the steps of his rigorous education, his joyous participation in Israel's customs. Feel the loving arms of parents and family as he circumcised on the eighth day. Catch the awe and wonder he felt sitting at the feet of the elder Pharisees studying the scripture. Identifying with the pride he felt when he became a son of the law at his bar mitzvah, become one with him as he grew in full manhood and earned the revered status of a Pharisee. And consider how he must have burst with satisfaction when he put on the dignified robes of a leader of Israel. From the viewpoint of many of these Pharisees, they had done everything in their power to understand God. They'd been honored for it. And now what you're saying is people don't have to go through all of that to have the same access to the gospel. And they were appalled by it. I can't help but picture the, the prodigal son. You guys remember the story? This, this artistic rendition of It's Beautiful. The, the, the prodigal son realizes that he's at the end of his rope. He returns to a loving father. And this painting is beautiful because the son is in the background there looking over the corner. And this the Judaizers would have been just like this. They would have been the ones who, do you remember what the son said when the prodigal son came home? He said, Dad, I never left you. You're throwing a party for my brother but I've always been here with you. There's, there's, par- there's um, parables that Jesus taught where he describes the fact that for some people, when they understand the gospel, it really feels unfair to them. And they're like the people who work all day in the fields and get paid the same amount as a person who comes at the end of the day. It just doesn't feel fair. And that's what the, the, the Judaizers are saying right now. They're saying that this just doesn't feel right to us. And at its root was this this level of fairness from their perspective. But church, I want to remind you this morning that the gospel plus anything is no longer the gospel. Anyone who would argue that you have to jump through a certain set of hoops in order to earn God's favor misunderstands that it's always been based on grace, right? God's undeserved favor. So there are people who had argued that, and there are people who argue that to this day. We have an extended family member that we love that grew up in the church and got connected to a church that started to teach things like this, where they said she had to do certain things, dress certain ways, she had to, to, to embrace certain things in order to earn the favor of God. And what we have to accept is there's no possible way to earn the favor of God. I talked about the Grand Canyon last week. I'm sure Bob Hershey can jump further than I can. But if we both try to jump the Grand Canyon, both of us, it's not going to work too well for us, right? That, that The gospel, we're told in the book of Romans that the law is intended to serve as a tutor to us to understand that we cannot, we cannot raise our level of of living to a point where we're acceptable before a perfect God. But what we do understand is it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, not by works so that no man can boast. Amen? You guys awake still? A couple of you are awake still. That, that this description then is one where they were on the wrong side of this. The, these guys misunderstood the gospel and it needed someone to discuss this truth with them. So, so what we understand at the beginning of this is that, that really in our lives, that the reality of life is that conflict is inevitable. We're going to find ourselves in places of conflict where we see things from our own perspective and and, and our experiences, and they they come to a point where we find ourselves on different sides of the fence on certain things, but we're so grateful that God's word can help us to understand God's will, right? And that it allows us to, to find ourselves in a position where anyone who attempts to add prerequisites to the gospel falls way short of the truth and understanding of the gospel so grateful for God's word. It goes on in, in verse, chapter 15, verse 6. It says, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, that same word that we used before, Peter stood up and he said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and they would believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he had done to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, for some of you who've been going through this series together with us, you remember, like they had this discussion already a couple chapters before. In fact, this this feels like deja vu. We We went through this already. But history has shown that, that this debate, even though it's recorded in scripture, is one that is as tale as old as the gospel has existed because the deceiver always wants to add to the gospel. But what he's saying there is they had their own Pentecost experience. The Holy Spirit has come to Gentiles and God's handiwork has been evidenced in front of us. Verse 10, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? In other words, why are you trying God's patience? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither you or your, or your fathers have been able to bear. Verse eleven's incredible. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all of the assembly fell silent. Just love this description. In, in other words, he reminded them who the real enemy is. Like, it's not us. We're, the enemy's not in the room. with uh, he's, he's the deceiver. He wants to distract us. That the, the truth of the gospel trumps everything that's around it. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul. And they related the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied. Now, James, half-brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church. I think for some of those Judaizers, they may be thought, well, this guy's going to see it from our perspective. But what James says is incredible. He quotes scripture here and he gives them a powerful message. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. For some of you, as you look at this conflict as it plays out. I've heard people say this, like, I don't do conflict. You guys know what I mean? Some of you know, I used to serve as a marriage and family pastor and I'd have young couples sit in my office and they would say, Pastor Sean, we have never fought in our lives. So proud of themselves. And my first thought is good luck with that, right? Uh, Those of you who've been married, you understand what I'm talking about. That's not just my relationship with my roommate. It's not just the reality of marriage, but relationships are tough, aren't they? Boss, those of us who have bosses, those of us who have re- like any kind of relationship, like that image of the barn, it can get messy, right? And, and here what we see as it plays out is that, is that for some of us, what we accept, there's a terrible example of this in scripture of just, just trying to get by, to, to pacify everyone, to, to stay on the down low. And, and we get this glimpse if we use scripture to interpret scripture. If we turn to Galatians chapter two, verse 12, we get this 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 unexpected little glitch in this system. So we just heard Peter describe his understanding of the unification of the gospel, what God was doing on behalf of Gentiles, but we get this glimpse in Ch- Galatians chapter two twelve and of an event that happened in history where Peter um, is who's going to be called a hypocrite, chose not to associate with Gentiles. It says this in verse twelve: For before certain men came from James. Peter Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. So he understood, don't call unclean what I've called clean. He understood that God was at work in the life of the Gentiles. He even used those words earlier in the passage that we studied. But when the Judaizers arrived, he began to draw back and to separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Again, those Pharisees that 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 are showing up in this other passage. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So what he chose to do here was he chose to to, to say, ah, yeah, this is really important, but I'm just gonna step back. I'm gonna pacify. I'm gonna try to to get away with not going through the kind of confrontation that God desires for us to have. (laughs) This was an act of cowardice and of self-preservation. And Paul's gonna call him out later. Uh, I I love this story, it's kind of a painful story, but my sister-in-law, she's a teacher at a school in the Dayton area, and uh, she shared with us last year that one of her students was really sad because of the fact that she'd lost her iPhone, and it was a brand new one. She'd gotten it for her birthday, and she she shared with Savannah that she thought she maybe left it in the restroom the night that they're there. And Savannah Savannah tried to encourage her and said, "Well, why don't you go home and check and see if you can do the Find My iPhone thing? You guys know what we're talking about. The you know where it'll make a noise on the phone and it can kind of GPS show where it is on a map." And so this young lady goes. And she does this. And after calling the police, she found out that this iPhone was showing up at the home of a janitor from the school. Now, you you might think, okay, this is going to work out just fine. No, it didn't work out very well for anybody because they called him. And what they found out was that when that noise went off, he stuck her iPhone in a blender of all things. And so what they brought this young lady back was a bag full of parts of an iPhone and let's just say that guy didn't get to be a janitor anymore. Okay? He, he he was afraid, right? He got caught. This was uncomfortable for him, and so what he chose to do was he chose to be a coward. That's literally what Paul says that Peter was doing here. It says this in Galatians two eleven. He says, "When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned." That that his hypocrisy had drawn him away from standing up for the gospel, in this case, to understand what it meant for him to stand up with those who he theologically believed were his brothers in Christ. And I I can hear some of you this morning thinking, wait wait a second, Pastor Sean, aren't Christians supposed to overlook an offense? That's actually a, a biblical concept. Romans 12 says to live at peace with everyone as long as it is up to you. But there are times in our walk with individuals that it is essential for us to choose to have good conflict with them, to spur them on, to challenge them. And I want to confess to you this morning that people have done that with me in my life in a a mighty way. And it's been such a difficult part of my life, but an encouragement to me as well. Here, Paul does this with Peter And it ultimately leads to Peter being put in a place that he understood his role as a Christ follower. I I think that it's appropriate at times for us to be people who do overlook an offense. A pastor friend of mine tells the story of having somebody who left his church and about a year later, he bumped into him and then they said, well, you understood why we left, right? And he found out it was because they felt like he he looked at him uh, with a sour look on his face in the church hallway, Okay, a year before, so, so they were bitter and hurt by this this look on his face, and the reality was he had no idea because he, he, did just, he just ignored him. he didn't notice him. He, he was focused on what was next, and that would have been one of those times that it would have been great to have ignored an offense. But there are other things that happen in time where we realize that we have to take the opportunity of good conflict. And in this case, it was a theological matter that had to be taken seriously, and it leads to the second point this morning. That's an important one. Good conflict provides opportunities. So here, the gospel is going to be lived out in their actions with one another. They're both going to lift up the fact that they're saved by grace. They need grace. We need to depend on it. That's what happened with Todd and I in that dorm room so many years before. That that we, dude, I'm wrong. I'm I messed up. I'm sorry. I need your forgiveness. It says this in verse 19, as as James turns this conflict into what is probably the most important word in confrontation, and that is restoration. Verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. Now, I want to pause here for a second. These individuals now, he's, he's looking at those who were Jews that had grown up with the Jewish laws. And he's saying, guys who are Gentiles, you want to recognize that we've talked about food sacrifice to idols. And we're saying, just just stay away from that stuff out of respect for them. Be kind to them. And from sexual immorality, now remember, Jesus taught things about sexual immorality that apply here. This word is the word porneia. It's it's a word that we understand as being something that twists the sexuality and gift of God. And, And this is something that still stood. This was a law. This was a mandate for Christ followers, but he's emphasizing it because they lived in a sex saturated culture that desperately needed individuals to stand up for their faith and to not conform to the pattern of this world. So he emphasizes this. And from what has been strangled and from blood. These, these two things are essential to understand for a Jewish person to watch someone who was eating a steak that was undercooked was repellent to them. It was so hard for them to be in the room with someone. So out of respect for them, what James is saying is avoid these things. Get this right Choose to set down your rights for the sake of them. I, on my commute home from, our, our to Hope Church from my home, I, I go by a, a yard, a road sign that has yield on it. And, and um, sometimes when people see yield signs, they actually do it, right? The, the other person has the yield sign when I'm driving. But I choose to yield sometimes out of respect for the fact that I want my car to drive after I hit that intersection, right? I, I have to choose to yield even when I don't have to legally. And I think what's happening here is he's saying yield for their benefit. Give them some room. Give them room to look at it from a different perspective. Be gracious. And and I think what James was doing here was he's not trying to put Gentile converts under the Mosaic law by imposing these restrictions. But what he's doing is he's ultimately saying we want to submit. We want to step back on behalf of them to allow them to maintain the unity and the bonds of peace that we want to see happen in the church like he's doing something that's kind and gracious i want to lay down my preferences for the goodness of others church we have to do that today still we're forced to do that at times as christ followers where we we know what our way would be and that we choose to set aside our preferences for the sake of others verse 22 goes on to say then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of, of the Gentiles in Antioch in Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, Although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and to send them to you in our beloved Barnabas and Paul. The text is going to go on to share what they decided. They, the gospel plus anything is no longer the gospel. You need to hear this. You need to be encouraged. Later, they, it says that they were deeply encouraged because of what they heard. But I want to catch something that's important and, and get, is going to give us some keys to good biblical conflict, and that is they figured out a way to come to one accord. They were unified. They weren't the same, but they stuck in there, and they were able to experience the kind of relational connection that I think God has designed for us to have. I think in our culture today, when, when we find that people disagree, the natural tendency is for us to separate, right? So, so we don't see eye to eye in this. We're just going to go our separate ways, but what they chose to do in this time in history was they chose to stick in there. They they stayed, and, and they did something that allowed there to be an environment of healing. You don't maybe know this statistic, but it showed up a lot in marriage and family ministry when I served in that area that... In our culture today, we have kind of the tendency to break up with each other, right? Like we get frustrated with each other. We go separate ways. But statistically, about 80%, 87% of couples who are married that take a break, that decide that they're going to separate themselves from one another, they end up in divorce. It's an incredible number because they're not in an environment where they can see the relationship healed, right? So so you got to stick in there. You got to stay in an environment where you can try to see healing take place. And I want to give you a few biblical principles that are helpful for us in applying this truth this morning. The first one comes out of Ephesians 4.15, and that is speak the truth in love. We see we see the the apostle Paul do this very well with Peter. His confrontation with Peter was one was to his face, direct. But he used his words, and words really matter. And what he did was he spoke to him truth. But it wasn't just truth alone; but it was truth and love. And so, direct conflict is not bad when it's done in love. I think it's important for us to see this flow out of this example of this early church experience. Now, uh, I'll share with you an encounter of my, in my own life that surrounded this. I was visiting a church. Actually, one of my daughters was performing in something at a different church. and was visiting at a church, and under the seat in front of me, there was a man who, when the senior pastor came up and his wife, uh, I didn't know them, but the, in the environment, I'm just a guest. When they come up to the front, this guy kind of gets a running commentary going. And you know how some people think that they're whispering, but they're actually not. You guys know what I'm talking about? No? You guys awake still? Yeah. So he thought he was whispering, I guess, but he is just talking about her dress, about his frustration with how the the pastor is, what he's saying. And he's just he's just saying this, no, I'm just a visitor at this church. First time that I'd sat around, like this is one of the first times I've ever been in this building. And and so, what I decided to do after the service was over was that I asked that gentleman to come and to talk to me. So it was kind of awkward because I don't know him. He was an older man, and I said, "Hey, is it? Would you mind coming?" And we, we went into a room separate, and I just I just talked to him. And I just said, "Hey, I don't know you, um, but as a person who's a visitor to your church, when we um, I assume that you're a Christ follower. He talked about being a Christ follower, and I said, as a brother." I want to share with you that like these things that you just shared were really, really discouraging for me to hear you say this, to talk about, maybe it was because he was talking about pastor's wives. I don't know. But, but the description was one where it just felt like it was a distraction. And you guys, as you're listening to this, you're like, what did he do? Did he punch you? What what happened? But actually the conversation was one that was intense. I think he left there upset with me. Who do you think you are? You know, kind of thing. But what I would find out later, actually from the senior pastor later, is that that man ended up going home, thinking about it, ended up reaching out to his elder board and his pa- the pastors there at that church, and it actually led to really cool restoration in the church. And you kind of look at it on the outside, you're like, wait a second, that would have been incredibly difficult. Well, it was. And I also want to be really clear that in my own life, in my own pastoral ministry, I've had people who've done that same thing to me that they've reached out to me and they've said, Pastor Sean, you've hurt me. You disappointed me. I didn't understand this. Can you help me to understand what you meant by this? And they did that in the right way. And instead of it tearing us apart, what it actually did was it led us to grow deeper and stronger in our relationship together. And I think that for some of us, we, we have to recognize that this Ephesians 4 mandate of of speaking truth in love can actually provide the kind of opportunities to, to go deeper in our relationship that God has designed for us to have. Remember, the rule is to be quick to listen and slow to speak, abounding in love, right? So two ears, one mouth, um, you know, that we want to be careful about how much we speak. But, but in the midst of this, it's appropriate at times to speak truth and love I think it's also important for us to remember that it's not about who the better arguer is or who the, um, the better, better, you know, support. It's, it's actually God's word is the highest standard for us in the midst of conflict. The second thing that comes to the surface is that timing matters here. We, we want to remember the fact that, that who's around us, how we do this really matters in the text, what we're going to see happen is that there's going to be a letter written, and it's written by James, and it's powerful. I think for some reason in the day that we live in, we're really quick to share our opinions. Maybe it's because of technology, maybe it gives us a voice, but we, we send the letter first, and then we think about it afterwards, right? We, we, we say what our heart is, and then we forget that that there is people on the other side receiving the message that we've sent. And here, what, what we want to do is get the timing right. And in this case, I think the timing was was done well, that they took it very seriously, but they also did so in a way that restoration can happen. So um, someone has said this well when it comes to relationships, that uh, the best time to deal with conflict is when there is no conflict. In other words, when you're not furious, angry with each other in the, the heat of the moment, but instead to step aside and to communicate truth and love. So who's there when you do it matters, when you do it matters, and, and remember, the goal is always restoration. It's a powerful truth. The third thing is to, in especially difficult conflict, to accept assistance. Matthew 18. There's a, an initial description of confrontation when someone sins against you, and it recommends that you go alone first to the person. That's that's this this second idea of timing matters. But then it also says, if it doesn't go well, to bring along another person. And in some of our conflict, especially interpersonal conflict, sometimes it's best to call in a lifeline, to invite someone to, to speak into the situation. James served that role in this time in the history of Matthew chapter 15, that he, he was a man who provided counsel and wisdom. It's, we're told in Proverbs, a multitude of counselors, transgression is unavoidable. And, and I think that there's, there's a part of this. Outside counsel at times can be a gift. Uh, at times it it allows us to to hear from another person's perspective the situation. The fourth thing that I will will bring to the surface is good biblical conflict is to yield for the benefit of others. Compromise is sometimes required in order to see a conflict resolved. Here, what they chose to do was they chose to come to a mutual ground that didn 't hinder the truth of the gospel. It never got in the way of allowing there to be a prerequisite to the gospel. That's not the compromise. But what they chose to do is to say, we're going to do this for them. We're going to lay down some of what are our rights in order to yield for others to be blessed in the midst of this. So so in, in the case of conflict in my life, at times it has led to great areas of compromise. At other times, though, when it comes to biblical Biblical confrontation, uh, like the Paul-Peter confrontation, there's no margin there to compromise. But we stand and we communicate truth because of the fact that that's God's truth. So here, this this leads us to that phrase that we saw we saw in the text. I think it's an awesome phrase. It says that they were of one accord. Now I am no musician. I've never claimed to be a musician, but I love to listen to a symphony orchestra and its complexity. And you understand what happens there is that it's not just the fact that everyone is playing the same instrument in the same way, but instead what we see is the complexity of a group of skilled individuals coming together unified under one plan. And what happens in their one accord is that they produce something that's beautiful. And I'd like to suggest as we come to the conclusion of this message this morning, that that for some of us, we need to recognize that that conflict is inevitable when it comes to relationship. That, that there, was, there was a recognition that historically there was great conflict. There was great discouragement that was represented in Acts chapter 15. Misunderstanding theologically, division that could potentially have divided the church. But instead what they chose to do was they chose to stick together. They chose to maintain communication. They fought to maintain the spirit of unity and the bonds of peace and when they got that order correct, what ended up happening was that the church was stronger than it had ever been before. That they did so on the basis of understanding a little bit of compromise and the capacity to lift high the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, we can do this today. The gospel is too important for us to ignore our capacity to lift it high. There's no prerequisites in scripture to receive the gospel. There's no one who should be able to get in the way of that, and we ought to fight for that truth. But beyond that, when it comes to the kind of conflict that's really common, whether it's in our marriages, in our relationships, even in our churches, when we do it really well, the end result can be something that's better than it was before we even began it. I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer as we um, close the service out, Lord, we love you, and I thank you for your word and I thank you for examples in your word of individuals who actually get it right. I thank you that when James wrote this letter at the end that he communicated truth in such a way that it says that that they were rejoicing because of it they were their hearts were set at ease that there was there was this this connection with the the body of Christ that was so powerful. Lord, we confess this morning that there's nothing the deceiver wants to do more but to split us up, to divide us, to allow us to isolate ourselves from one another in such a way that our relationships get broken and severed. But I want to thank you for a Bible that's full of truth and history that even allows us to have a glimpse like this today in Acts chapter 15 of really good conflict that was Done in love that led to restoration, and that your church became stronger because of it. And so I pray today as we continue to be people who strive to obey your word, strive to represent your loving kindness to a world that desperately needs it. uh, Lord, that I would pray that we would be people that approach our relationships with the same kind of grace that you've chosen to approach your relationship with us with. Lord. Would we be people that don't ignore but to engage? We love you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.